I spent a long time writing this first book and I, I just kept thinking I've got to pull the trigger someday. You know, it's with painting. It's the same thing. You know, when does a person stop painting a, a picture and you put down the brush and say, that's it, it's done. You, you, at some point you walk away and say, you're not going to put any, any more paint on that canvas. And the same is true with a book. Welcome to the My Future Business Show, where we get you in front of your best audience and keep you there. Not only are we interviewing the biggest names in business to help you become even more successful, we're inviting you to book your spot on the show to help you grow your business. So at the end of the call, make sure you fill in the interview application form at myfuturebusiness.com forward slash interviews. Hi, and welcome back to the My Future Business Show. It's Rick and I'm on the line with the wonderful Mr. Robert Springer. Welcome to the show, Robert. Thank you, Rick. Now, Robert and I were having a bit of a chuckle prior to the call uh, about his, uh, I guess, somewhat obsession with coffee. And we're going to talk a little about this. We're going to talk about uh, Plymouth. Yeah. We're going to be talking about Stratocruisers. And we're also going to be talking about his wonderful uh, book, The Organ Pipes of the Soul. But with all that being said, Robert, it's wonderful to have you with me today. Um, what we like to do, and I think it's very important for uh, this call in particular, is to, I guess, unwrap um, time a little bit and go back um, to when you decided um, you were going to write a book because I've looked at your bio. There's a lot going on there. <laughs> um, well, when I decided to write this particular book, uh, I had uh, I got my BA with an emphasis in creative writing and was actually working on a biography of my grandmother and it just never went anywhere because once I ran out of grandmother, I couldn't convert it into fiction. <laughs> <laughs> so after that, I was working on uh, an MA degree, or MS actually, Master's of Science degree in uh, English as a Second Language, and uh, the school ran out of work, basically. I had no summer job and I had no summer income, and I found a position at a publisher. So I was at that publisher for almost 10 years, I suspect, but it was quite a while, and uh, I wanted to get back into writing, but... Um, I found I had gotten quite rusty. I hadn't written anything. Muse hadn't awakened me at three in the morning, you know, and that kind of shake you out of bed experience that sometimes happens. Yep. So I took a writing course uh, offered through my public library at a discount. And uh, I, the instructor was awful. It was terrible. I got nothing out of the course, except after the course broke up, um, I found myself in a writing group with former members of this class. And just before the class broke up, I wrote this uh, little three-page, I think it was, short story based on a T-shirt I'd seen that said, uh, heaven is like a library. I thought, oh, that's neat. You know, what if two people meet in the afterlife in heaven and, in a at a library? And so I wrote this. Uh, the instructor called it a tidy conceit, I think it was, but he definitely used the word conceit, <laughs> meaning it, it's, it's impenetrable. You can't touch it. It's all wrapped up. It's nice and neat. And so if it's screwed up, it's screwed up. But if it's, so anyway, he wasn't being complimentary. But my writing <laughs> group was very patient with me. And a couple of um, things that had happened in real life or in dream life worked their way into the very open first parts of this novel and uh, over time uh, it was still at that time called the Isle of the Dead um, I just kept trying to work this whole novel out and eventually the writing group broke up and I got to the I was close to the end of the novel first if you want to call it a first draft I had the two main characters were in it Arthur and Elle and I knew that it wasn't ready and so I decided literally decided to finish it 
no matter what it took, even if it was awful, and start completely over. And I did that. Mm -hmm. And when I got to chapter three, a completely new character who I called herself, if you want to call it that. You hear about this all the time. You think, oh, that just never happens. Yes, it did. She called herself Coyote, and the opening line at this third chapter was, Coyote awoke with a hole in her heart. And the whole chapter, just like short stories often do, literally wrote itself from beginning to end. And once that happened, every other part of the novel fell into place. Um, even parts that hadn't been written before suddenly had a logic to them. So, um, but that still took another 10 more years of editing. And it was almost, might almost have been a total of uh, 20 between when I started writing this as that little short story and when I finally contacted Aaron Yeager at Vizia. That's uh, that's one hell of an itch to scratch, isn't it? But I'm on a couple of writing groups on Facebook, and, and there was another person there that said, well, my first my novel took me 18 years. And then there's an author that I read years ago named Austin Tappan Wright, who wrote one novel in his lifetime called Islandia. And he spent his whole life just constantly polishing this up and improving it, and I didn't want to be that guy. But at least, you know, at least I got a start on it. And I just finally hit that point I was saying earlier where I knew I had to, and I was going to try to self-publish it. And that looked more and more dicey. Yeah. And so I thought uh, I was, I'm a member of the Visionary Fiction Alliance. And um, I saw that Aaron Yeager, um, uh, who is also a member and works with this alliance, uh, had basically, he said, well, send me a chapter one of your novel and I did, and he liked it, and he contacted me, and um, we arranged for him to be my publisher. And I'm very glad I did that, because Aaron's taking care of a lot of things that would have completely puzzled me, such yes. as, um, for example, uh, how do you publicize one of these things? I know almost nothing about that, right? Yeah. Um, so he's helping me with that. I mean, I do some of the work, but Aaron's kind of guiding me, and then he does other work entirely on his own behind the scenes for me. So I have a publisher who's also a publicist, and it's it's ideal. It's it's exactly what I needed. These are the things that aspiring authors often neglect, and this is why I have a special spot on the show for authors because there are things that you should avoid, like the plague, in terms of writing and publishing, aren't there? Yes, um, a friend of mine at church, you know, has a book that he uh, went through. What's called here, um, vanity press, it's a term for it here in the States. It's mm -hmm. basically where they, you pay them, they assign you an editor, they clean it up a little bit and they print a bunch of copies and you pay for all those copies and then it's on, on you from there. That's it. And, uh, as far as I'm concerned, that's one of the big ripoffs in publishing It's the whole vanity press thing. And I thought they'd go away with the advent of Amazon and self-publishing, but sure enough, they're still out there. They're still there. They've so, got a heartbeat. They're, they're a bad a bad thing, I think. Mm. Um, so that was one to avoid, and it, it just got very convoluted and confusing, and I thought, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy I found a publisher. Given that uh, it's taken between 10 and 20 years, give or take, <laughs> um, yep, had, was there uh, uh, any sense of uh, relief, or was there a moment that you thought, I still need to add more? What, what was the feeling like when you got that book in your hand? Well, I kept putting it, I would put, for example, I would convert it to Kindle. I have a, you know, a program on Mac that converts it to Kindle, and I'd put it in Kindle, and I'd do a little editing, and I'd come back out, and I'd do a little more editing. And the amount of editing and the amount of change got smaller and smaller. 
I mean, I was finding fewer and fewer proofreading errors, fewer and fewer uh, things that I thought needed to be said better. And I, I finally reached the point. And then there was the COVID-19 that hit the world. It was like people are out there doing, what are you doing with, with your time at home? Well, I'm a retiree and I'm not teaching until next August. So I had some time. But it was also that encouragement that other people were trying new things while, while they're home. And I thought, well, let's try this. And uh, again, I was lucky that I think, you know, a publisher took an interest in me um, yep. early on. Uh, and that's been good for me. That's wonderful insight. Thank you very much for sharing. I know a lot of people take away value from this type of conversation. Now, you mentioned COVID. Uh, it seems to be an omnipresent conversation amongst many different groups for obvious reasons. Um, it's affecting all of us. It's a global thing. Um, why would, you know, given that you're a, a, a God-loving man, God-fearing man, however you term it, why would God allow such a terrible thing to happen in a world if he were to be in existence? Part of what I tried to talk about, theodicy is, is a, the definition of theodicy is a defense of God in the face of evil. Mm -hmm. So I undertook a bit of that, and um, I sort of split the difference. And the way I, I decided that, uh, again, there's a difference between suffering and evil. Yeah. And evil itself is an entirely human thing. Or if you want to look into demonology or something, and I'm, I'm not a big demonology person, but it's it's it's... It's something that conscious beings can do and do. Um, and I don't think anybody who's aware of what has happened in our history as a species would say that evil is, is entirely made up thing. It's obviously a, whether you believe in some form of, of demonic force or whether, and I tend this, this latter way, whether you think that the collective bad acts of humanity can be evil and create evil um, it's out there, and that that is on us, if you will. Um, and so, you know, to me, the tooth and claw of nature, and this includes viruses, unfortunately, um, is not part of uh, the uh, equation, if you will, mm -hmm. of, of evil and, and God's doings in the world. It's, it's as if you, if you were to say, well, let's make the molecule water with hydrogen and no oxygen if you're going to create life it's going to have parameters and i think one of the parameters is that uh life does its thing and that includes um viruses that includes animals that eat other animals and many humans and if we don't and as one of the characters in the story puts it you know he says well if you know, does the he's the chef so he's talking to someone he says you know uh, does the chef not know his butcher basically yeah um if you eat the potato do you not rip it from the soil does not life you know come from death so um that's not part of the equation of good and evil to me um and that includes COVID 19 now going back to the earlier thing human inter you know human beings and mm -hmm. how we behave in the world um we could all have handled this better you know if we if we were with behave toward each other as the best of us, Jesus, the Buddha, whoever you want to look at for your inspiration, if we were to behave toward each other as these people say we should, as we all know, really, I think that we should, then a lot of these questions wouldn't come up because when someone was sick, then instead of dealing with things on their own, um, you know, people would be looking out for them. We've had some of that. I mean, I'm, we've had people in our neighborhood who called up and said, hey, do you need anything from the store or just dropped 
English muffins off at our home. Yeah. So this is where sometimes the very best of us comes out when there's been some form of tragedy. It's the famous, there's a flood or a tornado, and then people just suddenly pour into an area to help. Yeah. Uh, the worse the tragedy, it seems, the more the impetus to go help is. So, uh, again, if, those, if we didn't have these things, in, um, then we wouldn't know that this other side of human nature exists. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, I, I wonder, inside the organ pipes of the soul, um, are there similar type references to the Odyssey? And, and you know, what are some of the more uh, telling tales that you share inside of the book? Well, um, I have in the story, and this came late, uh, the main character has a sort of direct encounter with God. Only when he does meet God, God is wearing his face. So he has his little Socratic dialogue with God, which he says doesn't go very well, <laughs> in which he asks him some of these questions. And some of them are never answered. And, and that's true in uh, real theology, too. For example, um, the Bible never says why there is suffering. All it ever says is that God suffers with us. And we know that um, because we, you know, if you're a Christian then and Jesus is, is the third person of the Trinity, then that's literally God hanging or, you know, one person of God hanging on the cross suffering. And so God suffers with us, and that's, that's the best we're given. The rest of it is, is like as Job is told when he's complaining about his, his life because he had it bad. Job is going, you know, like, okay, I'm covered in boils, head to toe. <laughs> yeah. This is awful, you know. <laughs> Why? And God says, where were you when I made the world? It's sort of a punt. It's like, I couldn't begin to explain it to you anyway. And so up until that moment when, you know, for Christians, Jesus dies for us, in effect, it's basically God is saying, I can't tell you. And then he's, he says, in addition, however, I will tell you this, I suffer with. Yeah. And that's the best we can get. It's, we have to live with that. Um, you know, the main character says, okay, that doesn't answer everything. Why does the why do the four horsemen of the apocalypse come from God and not from the devil? I mean, isn't that the devil's kind of thing? So there are questions that, that you know it's that are left there for us to solve or simply let's let lie and live with. There are some things inside the, uh, your biography that I looked at, and the last thing that you wrote is, I think you'll like where it takes you. That's a reference to where the book will take you. Um, mm -hmm. Why do you think that people will enjoy the journey? Um, I recently bought a novel uh, written by an Indiana author, and it was a lot of fun. It was a, a pirate story with an airship instead of a boat. And as well-written and as much fun as it was, uh, and I enjoyed reading it, it made no impact on me um, in terms of thinking outside of just experiencing the story. Mm -hmm. I like stories that make me think about things. Um, Philip K. Dick and his, his, uh, a lot of his writing with the Ballast Trilogy and others. And then uh, Walter, uh, I think it's Walter Miller, uh, but the Canticle of Leibowitz, uh, the Dun Book of the Dun Cow. People who write books that make me think are, and still enjoy the story. I mean, you yeah. have to enjoy the story. Otherwise, yeah. just get nonfiction out. It, it's not non-compelling, is it? Yeah. I mean, you know, if you want to read just the philosophy, then get out the philosophy or get out something else and read it. But if you want, if you're going to read a story that's going to make you think, 
um, then the story has to be good. And I'm hoping mine is, and I think it is, and I think others who've read it, I've had a few others who've told me that they really like the story itself. Um, so that if you took out all the theodicy and all the discussion of, of the morality of reincarnation, et cetera, that's in there, then it'd still be a good tale. Yeah. So that's important. But I also want a story that when people get to the end of it, they'll go, hmm, and, you know, and, and maybe think about things a little more or think about things in an entirely new way. Just, just, that, slight, just that slight moment of pause and that, hmm, just to get that like out of it. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I uh, I wonder, do you still like bass guitars? Do I still like what? Do you still like bass guitars? Do I still like bass guitars? Um, I love listening to bass guitar. When I listen to a piece, that's the instrument that I focus on. So if I'm listening to a jazz piece or a blues piece, I follow the bass guitar and then hear all the other instruments centered around it. But I no longer play. No. Um, I sold my guitar years ago to buy a mattress early on in our marriage when we were really poor. I found out, by the way, from the, the sister of the guy that bought it, that it became uh, a life-changing thing for him to own the bass that I sold. And oh, so wow. I'm quite happy that that happened. Awesome. But uh, that had been so many years, even more years in between when I got my BA and worked for the publisher, etc. that... Um, well, my wife tried to gift me a bass guitar, and uh, my fingers just couldn't remember it. It was a five-string. <laughs> I couldn't begin to figure out where it was. And, you know, so, yeah, I was quite frustrated by it. And I eventually sold it to a fellow bass player at my church and decided the time I would spend, A, relearning the instrument, and it would be pretty intense, and then, B, the time you spend practicing. Because if you're in a band and practicing, it's almost like being in a second marriage, you know. You spend yep. a lot of time in the band to get any good at all. Where does that come from? It comes from, A, my marriage, which is paramount to me, but also, B, from any other creative pursuits like writing. Yeah, so right. I gave up the guitar. <laughs> I, I, you know, I wonder, even though it, uh, it's not something you play, music seems to be, uh, for me, a window to my soul. Do you find that you get much from music? Oh, yes. Um, there's... A lot of there are a lot of references in the novel to music, to specific pieces of music. Uh, the second uh, major character, there are three point of view characters from whom the entire story is seen. Mm -hmm. It's a specific writing style as opposed to, say, author omniscient. Uh, it's author. Uh, it's, a, it's called limited omniscient. You're limited to the the knowledge of this one character. They know everything about themselves, but everything else they know is what they see. Um, and occasionally, you know, you have the view of that character, sort of the way you can view your own past or when you were 10 years old or, or 14 or something like that. And you can look at it and go, mm, yeah, that's yeah. what I was doing. So the second point of view character, uh, her name is Elle, and she is a classically trained pianist. And when she uh, enters this story, she at first isn't sure she wants to reincarnate. But when she decides she does, there is a station, and that's, I'll explain that if you want later. There are these various stations in the afterlife, and one of them is a conservatory of music, so she goes back there. And when she's there, um, several major, several pieces of music play a very important role in her story. Um, they either take musicians home, and she's in the audience, or she is playing and struggling to 
go home herself and doesn't quite get there. Um, and so, or it's used by other musicians to bring other people, you know, basically help them then reincarnate. So music played a major role in it. I, uh, I actually wrote parts of it listening to music. I don't do that very often now. Um, the scenes in the ferry boat, I listened to The Isle of the Dead by Rachmaninoff. But other pieces, um, uh, Stravinsky's The Rite of, not The Rite of Spring, it was uh, Firebird. I used parts of that, and just, and I you know, described it you know, to, the, uh, to the reader as just basically you can hear the basses in a counterpoint. I'm not trying to go note by note, obviously. Yeah. But you begin with a little bit of description of what the music is actually doing, and then the reaction, the emotional reaction, um, both by the audience and by the performer. Thank so you, sir. I built those in. I, I listen to this, and I, and I think there's just so many layers that we could un. I guess, uh, open up and unwrap here, isn't there? Go for it. Yeah, I, I, I wonder, in the afterlife, what is your perspective of it, given that we're on this side of, of life at the moment? What do you think is waiting for us? Is there an absolute well, quiet? Is there something else? If we're else? staying outside of the novel and talking about my views of the afterlife, afterlife, I actually, my MA thesis is closer to my own views of the afterlife. Um, I did an MA, my MA thesis is called Resurrectorium 20, called Resurrectorium 1920. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, I wrote that one in a lot less time. <laughs> <laughs> For an MA thesis, you don't have that much time, so I had a year. Um, but basically, it started before I, be, I began my MA program, it started as a, um, a flyer that you're handed. You've awakened in what looks like a hospital and you're handed a flyer, and the flyer says, welcome to the afterlife. You've been resurrected from the dead. Now, here are a few things you need to know. <laughs> and one of the things is, where is everyone else? Um, and the answer to that is, how, good, how well do you speak Babylonian? Obviously, you're going to be resurrected in cohorts along with people who understand your culture, your time, and to some extent, your language. So with that background, I, I wrote this story. And um, when I wrote that, the, the afterlife that I described had several different sec, uh, types, flavors, if you will, based on what region you woke up in. Um, the one that I woke up, I had my main character wake up in, is basically a bucolic, rather um, not socialistic, but you know, money is only important as a cipher to keep things going. You know, yeah. People don't really care about money. The only big difference between that world and our world is that no one dies. You have about a thousand years to get it right and move on to the next level of life. So it's very much like this life. And the reason I wrote it that way is in, in the Bible and in the way the Jews of the day believe that, you know, the body is resurrected. Okay, so when we die, we don't spend an eternity sort of floating in a spiritual ether. Mm -hmm. Human beings aren't embodied creatures you know you take away the body um what have you you have to have a body to have a human uh, the whole human being yeah um you know when we dream we know we're dreaming partly because it's not real to us we can tell that we're in a dream our senses are off no matter how good that dream is etc and then in the deeper the dream that's a shorter the period of time where it, it seems really real to you so um, we are embodied creatures. Um, we're not just minds. The whole Cartesian 
you know, Descartes, that whole Cartesian dualism thing comes much later in history and mm -hmm. is probably a real dead end. Yeah. So the early Christians, the Jews also believed in a resurrection of the body. And that's, that's again, there are uh, Job, that book of Job that I mentioned earlier, he says, I will basically see God face to face. So um, when I wrote this, though, the first, the novel that we're talking about, mm -hmm. this afterlife is much more like Hades. It's, it's uh, foggy. Um, I said it. I set it up such that you either reincarnate or you perish a second death. So it's not strictly what I, my ideas of an afterlife uh, from the point of view of a Christian. It's more of like, this is a problem to be solved. What are the uh, ramifications of an afterlife where um, you arrive, you either reincarnate or you dissipate? Yeah. And so, um, and then that led me to thinking about, well, what are the implications of reincarnation itself? And so I tried to explore some of those. And there are a series of quotes that Aaron asked me to put up. And so, so over the next few days, I'll be putting those out. And they come from different perspectives. There are people in the novel who uh, don't think reincarnation is a good idea at all. And um, so they're trying to put an end to it completely. They, they look upon it as sort of capturing someone before they're completely formed and imposing yourself upon them. Mm -hmm. And the other equation, other side of that equation is people, and this is L and others who think that you're gifting the world if you reincarnate that way. As for real reincarnation, um, that's a faith issue. You know, no one knows for sure do people reincarnate. The evidences for it are there if you if you like them, but um, they're not conclusive. So it's it goes back to, I'm not going to tell someone who believes in reincarnation. That, no, no, no. Sorry. Don't believe it. Yeah. 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 Um, just as you know, someone's going to tell me, well, you can't be resurrected from the dead. When you're dead, you're dead. Well, okay. Hang on. Yeah. For the yep. most part, that's. It's true for most of us. Just a different, slightly varied perspective. I um I wonder with this book, um, Robert, when when you're going through it, is it a chapter by chapter experience, or is it more like a guide that some may, somebody might actually go back to a particular particular chapter and read again? How does it work in that regard? It is actually, uh, although it's not entirely chronological. Okay. It is within any one point of view character. It's chronological with occasional overlaps. So I'll give you an example. Um, early on in the novel, there is a character who, uh, I call him the gatekeeper. He was Sharon of the, formerly the guy that rode you across the river Styx. So he's sort of been reduced to the gatekeeper. Now he's not happy about it. <laughs> and he perishes when a hut that he, he has where he has been distilling uh, memories so to speak, uh, go, it explodes, it goes up in a huge fireball. Well, each of the point of view characters experiences that at some point in the story. So the stories occasionally sync up and then they'll, they'll sort of, and this is, you know, they diverge a little bit and characters go on and they do their thing and then other characters do their thing and then there'll be another a converging point. Um, so there are these, these touch points where every, where it, each of the characters is experiencing the same thing in the afterlife as a way of giving the reader, uh, as well as my plot line, but mm -hmm. giving the reader a, a touch point where they can go back. So it unfolds as a narrative story. So it opens in a certain uh, you know place, and it has an arc to it where the characters struggle with things, and it has an ending to it. Yeah. So in that sense, it's a it's a classical um, 
rising falling action story arc, although the falling action, and, and this is true for a lot of stories, the falling action is rather swift. The classic pyramid uh, that you people think that, that you know stories go through, a Fry's pyramid, this Freitag's pyramid, this isn't the case. Um, most stories don't follow a Freitag's pyramid where there's the, the action peaks right in the middle of the, of the story. It almost always peaks much closer to the end, so it really looks more like a sawtooth. And I'm not an exception in that. Yeah, yeah. I, I wonder now that uh, the book is written and it's out there, what does your day look like? What are you doing with yourself uh, in the meantime? <laughs> well, recently, um, this is this is interesting. He's, recently, Aaron had a, he had a, a set of he was trying to collect some short stories to get a, a book of short stories, and he basically we had talked about me writing a short story from the point of view of the lighthouse keeper, who's one of the first characters you meet along with the main point of view character, Arthur. And uh, after we talked about it, he ended up putting it on, on a page. And I thought, well, now I've been challenged. <laughs> I have to write this short story. <laughs> um, it was unlike any short story I'd ever written, though, because for the most part, short stories, uh, they fall out of my head the way a poem often does, at least at first draft. It's just sort of 3 o'clock, the muse wakes you up and says, quick, get to the computer or get to a paper and pen. I've got something for you, and I'll usually write, even if it's 4,000 or more words long, in one sitting, and they go very quickly. Yeah. This didn't. This was, this was chipping away at it because I was working out of this novel, and I had to find ways to connect it, and I ended up writing a novelette of 10,000 words and then cut it back down to about six by taking out the extraneous parts. So it was an entirely different experience. Um, other parts of my creative day are um, trying to work with Aaron on um, getting the moving pieces going, various port pieces of uh, promotion and such like. Um, Can I, and, it's, it's interesting when you talk about writing, and, and oftentimes I hear authors talk about the writing's actually in the rewriting. Is that, is that true? Well, it certainly was for the novel. Yeah, yeah the, the, this novel. Um, again, Coyote appeared as a main character and entirely rewrote the whole novel and, and made all of it work. Um, short stories, as I said, they often are just, they simply pour out in one setting. Very little needs to be done to them for the most part. The, it's the subconscious mind can do such an incredible job. When you try to apply it as more of the conscious mind to it, um, then it gets a lot harder and you have to work with it and work with it until the conscious mind kind of takes the back seat and the subconscious mind can start picking it up and, and letting and running with it a bit. So there's that. Um, I wonder, um, like, it, who would this book be for? Would, would anybody get some, some benefit out of reading this book? I like to think so. I've had a few readers who weren't particularly spiritually inclined and mm -hmm. they enjoyed the ride, the story itself. Um, it's for readers who do like to be you know to challenge to be challenged to think i did you know i am publishing through uh, aaron who's a member of the visionary fiction alliance and i hooked up with them on my second novel so you know visionary fiction is, is fiction that has a spiritual basis to it or has you know a, either a spiritual transformation or and somehow that is one of the major themes of the story but it's not limited to you know the Visionary Fiction Alliance or Visionary Fiction or New Age writing or anything. There have been stories. I pulled up a list of the one, just the ones I read um, recently to see you know how many of them I could find, and 
you know, it, it's not just C.S. Lewis. Uh, there are, you know, stories with spiritual elements in it by Arthur Clarke. Um, again, uh, Robert Heinlein, Stranger in a Strange Land is a spiritual story, really. Mm-hmm. Um, man comes from Mars and encounters human culture and brings his Martian thinking with him. It's a very uh, spiritually oriented story. I think that's intertwined through many elements of our life's existence, Uh, Robert. Now, um, you're a wonderful individual. You've shared some great insights into this uh, mammoth piece of work. It's 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 a wonder. (laughs) It's a one, and I I suspect mammoths would probably a great would be a great way to 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 phrase it. It is a bit long. Yeah, about a hundred and fifty some thousand words, I think. Um, And uh, it seemed to need that to tell the story. Yeah. Uh, as I got working on it, I didn't want to, I mean, I could theoretically, it could have cut out, well, I don't know how you do this, but I could have tried to cut out the spiritual aspects to it, the theodicy of it. But I don't think it would have been as interesting a story. That, that's it the core, isn't it? Well, yeah, to me it was, and it was my reason to write it. Yeah, um, yeah I understand that. So uh, it ended up having to be that long, and certainly uh, I do think, though, that the payoff is that I tried my very best and i really think i succeeded in making sure that i didn't leave the reader with some like what happened to this thread it's one of the things that drives me crazy in film and television and uh books where the author will give you a a a plot thread and then not complete it and i didn't want to do that so i think i've got all the threads wrapped up at the end um and so some of them took a while um to be explored and to work their way out You've closed all of the open loops of the story. It's been uh, a, a massive achievement for you. Congratulations on this wonderful book. Now, when Thank people you. want to learn either more about you or get their hands on your bu- your books, should I say, where are they going to find you? Um, the website, Organ Pipes of the Soul, all one word, organ, P-I-P-E-S, pipes of the soul, dot com. Um, has uh, a link to purchase but it also has if you if, if anyone's you know wants to to check it out the first three chapters the first point of view characters all three of them arthur l and coyote you get their introductory chapters before they start interacting with each other or anyone else uh, so they could read that and if they like what they've read um then they can you know get the pre-purchase order up until august 25th when it goes live and they'll get you know they'll be buying the book as a purchase purchase very exciting thank you so much now for everybody who is on the call with us today as is customary i will be creating some links back to robert and his wonderful book now um this is uh, in pre-release at the moment but uh, get in early because i'm sure uh, you will not be dissatisfied with your purchase it's going to be a good read now with all of that being said robert you're a fantastic individual i've really enjoyed spending some time with you on the my future business show today Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed talking to you, Rick. It's been good. Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed the call, then make sure to subscribe, leave a comment, share us with your friends, and book your spot on the show at myfuturebusiness.com forward slash interviews. And if you're looking for solutions that will help grow your business, then visit myfuturebusiness.com forward slash shop.